morning, everybody. Morning, Bridgetown. Um, it's an absolute honor to be here with you, absolute privilege. Um, and I just feel like it's a really holy moment. I think um, uh, it's going to kick off, honestly. I think there's a, a, a moment of commissioning. I think there's a moment of revelation. And what I would love is if you don't treat this morning like kind of exotic stories from the mission field, but really just conventional Christianity as a bunch of us are just kind of muddling along together in a forgotten part of Cape Town. Um, and hopefully we can all learn a little bit today, because um, God knows I'm learning a lot just being with you guys. Um, what I have learned so far in Bridgetown is that the words Bible nerd are apparently a badge of honor. <laughs> I used to bully people at school for being Bible nerds, but apparently it's really cool, so um, up for that. Um, and just looking around the room, there's some great facial hair, isn't there? I'm talking mainly about the men, I must admit, but um, <laughs> exclusively about the men, sorry. Uh, I thought I'd walk in the opposite spirit this morning and I had a shave, but, um, and just achingly trendy. I thought it was the Holy Spirit Conference, but it's also apparently Portland uh, Fashion Week, so <laughs> I hope jeans and a t-shirt are okay. And I hear as well that you're all obsessed with this thing called huckleberries, which I had never heard of. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so great. Um, the one I can relate most deeply to, though, is that I've noticed and heard, and it is indeed true, that you love Jesus deeply. And I can relate. The other ones, not so much. So thank you so much, Tyler, and everybody for having me today. So my name's Pete Portal. Um, I am British, but have lived in Cape Town for the last 14 years. Slightly confused accent if you're trying to place it. That's what it is. Um, and I live in Cape Town with my wife, Sarah, and daughter, Simtandile. Um, that's us looking, looking very uh, photoshopped. That's actually not photoshopped. Um, and I'm part of leading a uh, church community, a 24-7 prayer community called Tree of Life in a township, uh, a community called Manenberg. Um, now, Tree of Life, as Taylor, uh, Tyler mentioned, is uh, we have two residential ministries, one called Crew 62 for guys coming out of gangs, drugs, violent crime, and another called Basilla for uh, 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 addicted and abused mothers and their children. And um, we do church pretty well, Monday to Saturday, to be honest. Uh, and, uh, and on Sunday, we kind of gather in a kind of chaotic group. Uh, um, it's kind of chaos. Uh, we have some recovering addicts uh, at our meetings. We have some current addicts in our meetings. We have perpetuators, uh, per perpetrators of crime, and we have victims of crime. We have um, people who have come out of Islam and people who are still in Islam. We have a couple of manic children running around, and um, even a handful of Christians. Um, much like this, really. Uh, what can I say? <laughs> um, but Cape Town is a city with a split personality. As Tyler mentioned, it is the most racially divided city in South Africa, which is the most economically unequal country on earth. Okay? So we're talking deep end stuff. Um, the natural beauty and the unnatural segregation. Um, it features in the top 10 cities to go visit, and yet is also in the top 10 cities per homicides per 100,000 people. 
It's got some of the most beautiful examples of sort of developed world, first world luxury, but the majority live in some of the worst examples of human poverty. You could say it's a city of glitter and ghetto juxtaposed, where a spirit of fear prevails. And so we've made our home in a township called Manenberg, 20 kilometers east of the city center. Um, now, Manenberg, uh, to explain, it shouldn't exist. Manenberg shouldn't exist. And let me explain. It was created by the white supremacist apartheid government where those deemed non-white were forcibly removed, we're talking homes bulldozed, and thrown in like cattle to uh, 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 trucks going to the sandy um, outskirts of the city. And so today, quite inevitably, gangs prevail. I don't know about you, but if somebody came and bulldozed my home, I would really try hard to mark out my turf wherever I was. And so we're saying that gangs are a collective trauma to historic and structural injustice, not just a kind of immoral scourge on a rather beautiful landscape. And it's my favorite place I've ever lived. Um, but it is often referred to as the heart of Cape Town's ganglands. I mean, just to give you an example off the top of my head, the gangs, the hard livings, there's a gang called the Americans, sorry. Um, I think some of them are here today. Uh, the JFKs, the Clever Kids, the Mongrels, the Dixie Boys, the Stupa Boys, the Luxury Kids, the, my favorite, the F the World Kids, the Taliban, the KGB, the Ghettos, the DMX, Westsiders, Sexy Boys, all the rest of it. And we have a massive issue in Manenberg with crystal meth, with heroin, and with Mandrax, which is a... Uh, uh, tranquilizer with psychotic side effects that is crushed up and smoked in a glass bottleneck with marijuana and was actually flooded into the townships by the apartheid regime to keep people comatose. Um, I've just got a little three-minute video that I wanted to show you because I think images are really more powerful than words in many ways. And um, so this is a little bit of what it looks like, and some of, I suppose, the narrative that we're trying to ask as we seek Jesus together in Manenberg. So have a little watch. Our policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word, apartheid. Will it take to change the story? A vision from the heart of God, growing community and restoring worth in forgotten places. We all have a journey marked out ahead. There will be both victories and tragedies. Where will yours lead and what trials will you face along the way? The voice of God deep within is beckoning us into adventures as yet unknown. Wholehearted lives, so costly but relentlessly hopeful. Could another world be calling a compelling new reality? Where walls are torn down and friendships built? Where myths are exposed and unheard voices listened to? The old order of things made new. But what of the cost, the accusation, the despair, the choruses of it can't be done, 
we can choose what to believe, to rise up above the pointing fingers of accusation and the shrugs of indifference. The stories we live in are the stories we live out. What if yours is a story that the world is crying out to hear? Because ultimately, there is no neutral ground. Our life is very simple. We live in Manenburg. We invite gangsters and addicts to come and live with us. We introduce them to Jesus. Holy Spirit helps them get free. And then they go and tell others. And that's me done. No. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, how does this work then? That sounds neat. Yeah, well, it's a combination, I suppose, of inner healing and deliverance. The 12 steps, boxing, woodwork, counseling, fellowship, not getting people off drugs, but introducing them to the one who created them in the first place. And gangs and drugs, by the way, are never the problem. They're just someone's very imperfect attempt at trying to find a solution to the lived agony of living in a city where the law of apartheid was dismantled in 94 and the spirit of apartheid continues to prevail. And well-meaning Christians often tell us that we shouldn't do what we do because gangsters and addicts are bad people, remember, and they belong in jail. Uh, but we believe actually that we're all bad people and some of us are saved by grace. Amen. And that nobody belongs in jail, but each belongs in family. And then people say, well, yeah, but you shouldn't live where you live. At least commute in with a combination of hugs, opinions, and uh, advice. <laughs> and we believe, no, 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 no. Actually, if Jesus lived in Cape Town today, he would live in Manenberg. And there's a biblical precedent for that in John 1:46, Because people say to us, Manenberg, can anything good come out of Manenberg? We go, oh, hang about, hang about. We've heard that one before. And so the streets of Manenberg often witness violent crime, and, but we're learning that no scheme of the enemy can stop a move of God if God's people are willing to go and show up where few others will. Amen? And so I think of a, a, a day a few years ago where um, it was a... Pretty grisly gang fight going on. People were shooting on the streets and we sensed that we really needed to prayer walk. We prayer walk uh, on a weekly basis. And um, so a, a handful of us went out and as we walked down the street de declaring peace, we saw a man, an old man hobbling on a pair of crutches, uh, obviously unable to use one of his legs. And we went up to him and we said, hi, what are you doing here during gang fight? You know, and here's, I'm trying to get home. <laughs> um, and we said, what happened to your leg? He said, I fell off a roof trying to sort out something for a friend's leaking roof. And we said, would you mind if we prayed for your leg? And he was like, I mean, sure. 
So we prayed for his leg, and as we did, he started yelping, and he said, the pain's gone, and I can move it again. And we're like, well, that's a good result. And he picked up his crutches and sort of beckoned, sort of, see you later, and off he went. And we said, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, Sorry, sir, do you know who healed you? He said, well, you did. I mean, and we said, no, 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 his name is Jesus. And his healing is a sign of his love for you. Would you like to meet him? Would you like to know him? He's probably got a lot more than just that for you. Sure. So as we prayed with bullets flying around down a couple of streets down, this, young, this old man, Uncle Henry, bowed his head and wept as he accepted Jesus into his heart. And then off he went, carrying his crutches back home. So even in gang fight, even in Manenberg, God is showing up in the opposite spirit to the prevailing powers. And this story, I suppose, goes some way to conveying the biblical basis of how we approach what we do, because it's really just conventional Christianity. I would hate for you to disempower yourself by thinking that there's something specialist about this. It is really not. We're flying by the seat of the pants. We are building the plane as we fly it. And we are learning from failure as we go. So this first slide I've got is um, what I am preaching on today. I'm not so much of a Bible nerd, so I just wanted to focus on one three-line verse. I hope that's okay. I want to know Christ. Hands up. Who's, who's with me? We want to know Christ. Okay, Paul, what does that entail? And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So the next slide shows us where we start. And this is the difference between social justice and kingdom justice, is that we start in contemplation with Abba Father. We start... And where we go ends up, depending on what he says, prayer, solitude, silence, fasting, you guys are leading the way with all of this. But it's our peace, our purpose, our health, our healing, our starting place from which we never graduate is the presence of Jesus. And if we understand this, then burnout need never be a Christian term. Because if we are burning the fuel that the Father has given us for the assignments that he's called us to, there will always be enough. It is when we step out of that or when we don't go back to the presence that we will end up burning out. I've learned it the hard way, trust me. And so prayer, Thomas Merton said, our real journey in life is interior. Everything flows from this. And so in contemplation, we are aiming, aren't we, for depth rather than noise. Um, One of my favorite quotes at the moment is that the church is a little bit like a swimming pool. Most of the noise comes from the shallow end. We're laughing because it's true, right? And we, in contemplation, grow roots that are deep because the noise we hear from heaven pours into the noise we make in the world. And what is this noise we make in the world? The next slide will show us. Well, part of it is as we abide, we are aware of heaven. 
We're seated in heavenly places. And, and this is accessed through abiding in the vine, connected, seated in heavenly places and doing what Jesus did, which is why signs and wonders and power and healing, the display of God's glory, God's glory is just his holiness on public display. And it's our privilege to take part, right? This is not specialist, this is for each one of us. But yet there's a purpose to all of this, as Acts 10.38 tells us, where we read that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because why, how? God was with him. He abided in the vine. Christ in me is the hope of glory. His presence in me is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what empowers us to bring solutions that we couldn't solve on our own, right? A friend of mine had a problem with heroin that he couldn't solve on his own. Most problems involving heroin cannot be solved on our own. Um, and so a couple of us took it in turns. He said I, he, he had met Jesus, but he hadn't actually been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so a couple of us took it in turns to sleep next to him in a 24-7 prayer room, one night after the other, and every night when he woke up with his cold turkey, his, his detox pains, which is joint pain and headaches and nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and just like feeling like you just want to die and he'd wake up and as he did in pain we would speak in tongues together, pray in tongues, he would receive the gift of tongues, his pain would go, he would go back to sleep and we would do that, seven to ten days we'll probably do it. And so when we're looking at, but Pete, how? There we go, there's your practical step, seven to ten days. And, and, and then the real work starts, by the way. A friend of mine who's done this a lot longer than I have said, you, ideally you have three people for each person coming off heroin. You've got one person answering the door and making the tea. Very important. You've got another sleeping, and you've got the other with the person detoxing, praying in tongues with them. And you just rotate, seven to 10 days. Then the real work starts, because breakthrough requires multiple follow-throughs. And as with all of us, actually, who follow Jesus, we're all in recovery, right? Each one of us is being renewed day by day. If you could see my thought process today, you'd see how many times I relapsed in my head just getting here. The young man I'm talking about is now over 10 years clean and uh, a father to three and a husband and just... Uh, qualified to be a, a plumber and um, could not be more proud of him. And we continue to empathize and emphasize the gift of tongues and speaking in tongues for deliverance from addiction and demonic oppression. If that sounds a little bit spicy for you, then we're going to pray later and maybe that can be part of your story. And it makes me think of the man with the legion of demons in Mark chapter 5, because he was chained up, wasn't he? He was relegated to a life on the margins, shunned, ignored, incarcerated. Uh, hello, sound familiar? <laughs> the villagers had no power. They had no power. They had no idea. It was a situation of mere containment, was it not? resigned to look out for the safety of the majority. Sounds a bit callous, doesn't it? But we need to remember this was the best the world had to offer. 
And Jesus, of course, in one word, sends the demons out into the pigs, which, by the way, represented the status quo and the financial security of the entire village. So the choice I think he might be asking is, what do you want? Life as it always has been, financial security and status quo, or demoniacs getting free in your community? I'm pretty sure there's no neutral ground in that as well. And it makes me think of a friend who, um, after years of trauma and abuse, fatherless, and started growing into crystal meth and gang membership, um, uh, got delivered from demonic oppression of rage. He was running at our prayer room, throwing bricks at the windows, um, which is a questionable use of a prayer room, I've got to be honest. Um, but he had come to us after actually escaping six shots fired by about two meters away. His nickname in his street was The Great Escape because God has preserved his life. He got Jesus, uh, he got sober, he found Jesus, but rage still prevailed. And so we had to physically restrain him. He was trying to kill one of his brothers in Christ. You've got to understand when we come to faith, we are somewhat Christian. There's a sanctification process we're all on, right? Um, we took Sarah, my wife, as she does, took authority in Jesus' name. His eyes went dark. They rolled back. He began to writhe like a snake. And so we sat with him for hours. Adam and I, in fact, um, prayed in tongues together, led him through prayers of repentance and forgiveness. Took him three attempts to just open his mouth. He had to pray it, not us. And by about midnight, he was free. So what are you doing with your weekend? <laughs> and he continues to work this out in close proximity and fellowship because as I say, relapse is part of recovery. And so Jesus had the power that the world knows nothing of and we need to operate in that power in order to set those afflicted by demons free. Amen? Or I think about the chronic illness of a dear friend of mine who had sciatica nerve pain and her hip out of place and for six years she struggled to walk, exacerbated by a pregnancy and she had to be carried to the bathroom by her husband. She'd seen a number of doctors but only got worse. It was chronic and she was resigned to being sick the rest of her life despair and hopelessness. Short story, uh, or rather short, um, long story short, uh, a friend prayed for her, her leg grew out, her hip went back in, the sciatica nerve went, and she was running through the garden in the pouring rain, leaping, jumping, and praising God. And her husband, the guy who had been carrying her to the toilet the last three years, enveloped him in her arms, and they sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Jesus has the power that the world knows nothing of to set free those who have been sick with chronic ailments. It's just conventional Christianity. It really is. The next slide shows us the other way we go. So we've gone from heavenly minded to now worldly minded. That song that says the, 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 the things of earth grow strangely dim, I mean kind of, that's half true. The verse four of that talks about going into a world that is dying. That's the lament wing of this, right? And you only have to look around at the world to see that it's a, a bit of a horror show sometimes. And we need to become aware of the narratives of pain in order to undo the surgical precision that structures of injustice came into being, amen? We cannot simply think that turning up to church on a Sunday is going to do that. The apartheid project was, get this, at its heart, a theological project of heretical wonky theology that kept people bound for decades in state 
institutionalized white supremacy. If there's any argument for reading our Bibles, that is it, right? We do not want to be told what to think. We want to work out Holy Spirit how to think. And we do that as we read the newspaper with our Bible, as we talk about systemic and political issues, as we put our brain back in if we've left it at the door. Because Augustine says hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain that way. As we lament, we find bubbling up in us hopes, beautiful daughters, anger and courage. And we begin to realize that the Father is giving us strategies for unpicking things that have remained as they are for decades and centuries. We need to develop what, the, uh, 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 what another Bible ninja, N.T. Wright, says is the double life of Jesus, which combines the heavenly perspective with an earthly engagement. The glory and the grit. And so how do we do that? We share trauma. We move in. We are not missionaries in any sense. If I'm a missionary, it's to you guys, not to my neighbors. Um, loving your neighbor as yourself, by the way, is as supernatural as raising the dead. We both need the Holy Spirit to do it completely. And we go after not just a healing of bodies, which is fully gospel, but a healing of memories. As we unpack our cultural loyalties that are sub-kingdom and confess and repent to each other and pick up from other cultures and other um, ethnicities and other perspectives in the world, ways of doing things that as we put them all together, we begin to say, that is probably a kingdom culture that is unique to this room rather than some flat pack imported thing from wherever. And we listen. Lila Watson, the Aboriginal activist, said, listen, if you come here to help me, do not bother. But if somehow your freedom is wrapped up in mine, then let's walk together. And so something that I think actually for Portland is really subversive and prophetic is reciprocity. Not this anemic virtue signaling that actually leaves structures of injustice kind of untouched, but rather a reciprocity where it says, I want to put myself at a point of need rather than thinking I have all the answers for you. And so we choose people, not issues, because when we choose people, the issues choose themselves. Amen? This is the way, I believe, of lament leading to activism. And where do these two meet? Next slide shows us in the prophetic. We have the systemic prophetic and we have the personal prophetic. And a pic, uh, 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 <laughs> one of my favorite stories of the personal prophetic was a friend of mine called Munir. And he was a prison gangster. He was uh, on the streets, a gangster. You've got two different gang stories, long story, but he was deeply into gangs. He was a Muslim. He had an eye that looked a bit like a pickled onion, to be honest. It was, um, he had been stabbed in the eye, and so it was kind of hanging in like... He didn't have money for a doctor. Um, and he was just the sweetest guy. And he came and lived with me for a couple of weeks. And we decided, I just said, you, you can come live with me, but on the proviso that we read scripture together. He was like, no problem. Um, and so we studied the parable of the sower. And you know, it, it ends with the kind of what soil are you type thing. He was very convinced what soil he was. He was the bad soil, he said. Um, convinced of his sinfulness. Generally speaking, he didn't need to be told that he was living a virgin of hell. He knew it. And, but he said, listen, there are two obstacles for me following Jesus, Islam and gangs. I really wanted to argue that that was ridiculous, but don't argue, pray. Do not argue, pray. So I said, well, why don't we pray to Jesus? 
and see if he would show you that these obstacles needn't hold you back. Why don't we ask him for a sign that you should let go of Islam and prison gangs? Anyway, later that week, he comes in, he's making a cup of tea and sort of pouring the entire bag of sugar in, doing his thing. And, I, and he began to tell me about a strange encounter he had just had on the, uh, the roundabout by Manenberg Avenue. He said, yeah, yeah, yesterday a group of five men came up to me and they asked if they could have a word with me. I thought, who is this? They looked kind of shady. They had prison gang tattoos, but they introduced themselves and they all had Muslim names, Ahmad Suleim and Muhammad Ibrahim and Abu Bakr. And I was like, okay, right. So prison gangsters are also Muslims. He was like, yeah. Um, but they were holding Bibles and speaking like Gekbrus, like church brothers. I was like, okay, yeah. He goes, they all used to be Muslims and prison gangsters, but had met Jesus, they told me, and they said um, they'd received forgiveness for their past, and now they followed him. And, and then they said the weirdest thing to me. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Like, heart, like, do, 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 do. <laughs> they said God had sent them to me, and that he was opening up a door, and that I just needed to walk through it. He's stirring his sugar into his, he goes, any idea what that means? <laughs> That's on a plate, right? And yet, he still doesn't know Jesus. God will not invade our free will. And so we continue to pray. And that was one of the most momentous answers to prayer I've ever seen. And yet, you can still say no thanks. And yet, we can still walk in proximity to him, believing that God is very much on his case. Amen? And so we try and live as a sign, not as a solution. We share our homes. But we also try and uh, dream up alternative funding mo models for home ownership. Generally speaking, the activism side is a little less sexy in church uh, 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 circles. Two-year listening process, dealing with the race issues and the trauma issues and the culture and trust issues in our staff. This is the way of the kingdom. And then the final slide, the result of all of this, right at the bottom, the future of a res revived church and a rewired culture. That's a lot of info. Psalm 107 verse two says this, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And we've made a short film that I want to show you. Is that all right? Now, I say short. It's about nine minutes, so get comfortable. And it was of a young man called Marwan who lived with Sarah and I for about 18 months a few years ago. And when it comes to the heart of revival, to see the healing and transformation of society, when it comes to the heart of activism, to see structures of injustice dismantled through revelation from the spirit and sound minds. This story really epitomizes, embodied exactly what we're talking about. So we're gonna show it, it's nine minutes, and then I'm gonna come and conclude and then we're gonna go into a time of ministry if that's okay with you. All right. My name is Marawan. I'm the middle son of six siblings. Growing up in Millenburg, for me, it wasn't easy. I've been exposed to a lot of things at a young age. 
violence, drugs, gangsterism. My father was in prison in my life. My mom was also drinking. That's why I looked up to the guys on the streets. I can't even I started using drugs at the age of 14. Men drugs, crystal meth. I did heroin, feeling like I'm the best in the world, but I don't look like the best. I look like someone who's living on the streets. No matter one started being aggressive and violent when he was around about 13, 12 years old and he stabbed his mother's boyfriend for hurting his mom. There's a funny story about Marawan and Leon, the time they first met was six years ago when Marawan was still using heroin. I met these three gentlemen walking beside me. The one had a knife on me while the other two was searching my pockets and one of them was Marawan. I just spoke to them, spoke to them under the love and the kindness of Jesus. <laughs> so five years after the mugging, Leon's totally forgotten about it, but it's obviously stuck with Marawan because when he turns up at church one evening and Leon's there, his heart starts racing and he realizes, I need to reconcile with this guy. I forgot about the whole incident. He says, you know the words that you said that night never left me, it stayed with me. So in our work with gangsters and drug addicts, one of the things we realized was we needed a residential intervention for these guys to actually have a place that's safe and calm and gang neutral for them to come off drugs and out of gangs. So we set up Crew 62, this transformational community house. We base it on a family model, so it's really small. We run a nine to five program, but have a lot of family elements as well. The biggest part of it is our spiritual discipleship. Dwayne and Marawan had a friendship going all the way back to early childhood. And before we had set up Crew 62 House, Marawan had actually approached Dwayne because he'd noticed this complete transformation in Dwayne's life. Marawan knew me before I got clean. He knew me in my addictive days. He knew how I looked, how I was. One day I saw my brother's friend, a very changed person. He didn't use anymore. Immediately I told myself, that is what I want. I don't want to use anymore. I don't want to hurt my family and hurt people around me. I saw Marawan going and begging, walking with bins, trying to just earn to use. He was desperate to get out of it. I told him that I need this, so I grabbed that opportunity. I told him that I'm ready. Marawan was one of the first intakes, so we were still kind of trying to learn how to do things. One of the things we did have faith for was that Jesus is more powerful than addiction. You unravel me. It wasn't easy for me coming into the discipleship house because I was still in pain. I was cold turking. He hadn't smoked the morning he came in, which was one of his like funny moments of, you guys came before he was ready because he planned to take a hit before he arrived. He was really, really sick. He was throwing up, hot, cold fever. His whole body was shaking. Shaking so much that the bed literally shook with him. The third day, I remember I was laying in bed and I told myself, this is the day I had enough of this pain. I will run off and, and go use again. Once a month, we hold worship nights at the coffee shop around the corner that we run. And Marawan came ultimately because Sarah kept bugging him. I went to um, 
went to him, he was wrapped up in his little bed and I said, like, Marwan, would you like to come to worship? And he said, no, he didn't want to. And I walked away and then I went back again because I just felt like he needs to come. I don't know why, but I just had that feeling that I need to go. And I was laying there and I told myself that if you're in half, you will just go back and how will you be able to become someone better than you used to? So I went back and said, are you sure you don't want to come? Like, just come for 30 minutes. He was a Muslim guy, he had just come into the house. He didn't know what all of this was about. But to his credit, he wrapped himself in a duvet and, and, and came. I see this crowd of happy people. I heard that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. The words of that song just ran through my mind continuously. And I was realizing that I don't want to be a slave no longer of drug addiction. I don't want to be a slave of the devil anymore to hurt people. And as the song started playing, Marwan threw off his duvet, jumped into the middle of the room and just said, pray for me. Something just came and touched me and I stood up without feeling a pain or without feeling anything. The pain just completely left, all of his symptoms left, his fever stopped, everything. Instantly healed of all of his withdrawals, all of his cold turkey. I was telling the people around me, I'm not feeling the pain anymore. What is going on? What is happening to me? I couldn't understand it. I was jumping around and dancing. I can't explain it apart from it was just the anointing of the Holy Spirit to heal this guy who was utterly poor in spirit and utterly dependent on a touch from Jesus. I came into the house as a Muslim and it was a bit difficult for me. As time went on, I started seeing how Jesus transformed people's life around me. One evening, a group of men turned up at the gate and um, kind of interrogated Marwan and said, are you going to mosque, are you doing this and that and all these um, Muslim rituals? And he said, no, I'm not anymore. At the end of that, I was sitting in the house with Marwan. I said to him, um, so what did, what did you say to them? And he said, well, they asked me if I believe the Bible's true. And I said, what did you say? And he said, well, how can I deny the truth of the Bible? Because what I read in scripture, I'm seeing happen in my day-to-day -day life. I was feeling loved all the time. That made me hold on to recovery. When someone experiences and encounters Jesus, everything changes. And in the middle of the night, I may watch you go. I'm grateful to, to walk this walk, and I believe this walk is going to change many lives. We are not going to change the lives, but Jesus is going to do the. An anti-crime activist who died in a car crash has been lauded as an inspiration to the youth. 21-year-old Marwan Scullard was knocked down by a car in Johannesburg last week. The day when I heard that Marwan died, it was hard. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to accept it at all. It's crazy. I don't get it. It was tragic. We're still reeling from the whole thing. We're all devastated. He was really, really loved. Grief's a bizarre process of ups and downs, and we have no answers to why it happened, but what we do know is that Marwan died doing what he was passionate about, and he could say that he was living for something that was worth dying for. And I don't think there's any better way to go than that, honestly. I think that the legacy that Marwan's life has left behind is one of great hope. He was able to break the chains of addiction, break the chains of old behaviors. 
Marwan had any excuse you could think of for why change and why coming to know Jesus isn't possible. I didn't know him before he came into the house, but people tell stories of how terrible he was, what a nightmare he was, how he thieved and robbed and mugged people. If Marwan's life teaches us anything, it's that anyone, no matter how bad or addicted or violent they are, can belong in a community of people following Jesus, be changed, and then do something meaningful to give back. What he had hoped was that he could share his story around the world and that people would take hope and take courage. That's what we want to do is we want to tell his story even now that he's gone. So let me ask us, is what we are living for worth dying for? Our verse ends with becoming like Jesus in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Did you hear what Marwan said when he first entered our home? On the third day, I'd had enough. He was thinking about leaving. His slave master, heroin, was knocking. And on that third day, Jesus raised him from drugs and gangs and Islam into a new life. And yet, after he died, we flew to Johannesburg and spent five days trying to raise Marwan from the dead. Which is also conventional Christianity, by the way. And whilst nothing happened, we will see him again. And we're not sure how it works, but Paul says we will somehow. <laughs> I like that word, somehow. And so as I land, I want to say this. Jesus was betrayed and died a violent death. If it brought death to Jesus, bringing the gospel to others, I'm not saying we're all going to die in some token martyrdom, but each one of us, when he says, I have come to give you life in its fullness, we go, amen, we tweet it and we're excited about it. But then when he actually conceptualizes what does this life in its fullness look like, he carries on and he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so why do we think if Jesus did that for us, it would be any different as we share the gospel with others? Betrayal and death are both part of life. Jesus went through them, and whether you live in Portland or Manenberg, you will experience it. But I'm going to be honest, there's a choice, because proximity to addiction, pain, poverty, injustice multiplies that. And we've seen a lot of it, a lot of death, and been betrayed many times over. But hear this. Death and betrayal do not 
get the final say. They just leave us aware of our poverty of spirit, our utter destitution without Jesus' power and love. Because here's the thing, if you have knowledge and ability and answers, the world will call you successful. You can choose to spend your life going after that, and you'll be celebrated. But if you come to the end of yourself, if your neediness for the Holy Spirit is all you've got, if you long for and labor for God's presence above all else, Jesus will say, blessed are you, the poor in spirit. Mm -hmm.